What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to talk all about disability advocacy. And joining us today is a great guy named TK Small, hailing all the way from Brooklyn, New York. Coming right up on Handy Schlapped. All right, everybody, and here we are with TK Small. He is one of the admins in a Facebook group that I belong with, and I've known him for a few years now. We talk on and off here and there, and I just want to welcome him to the show. Welcome, TK. How are you doing today? Um, okay. Uh, thanks for having me, Jordan. Yeah, man, no problem. So, COVID-19, how are you doing with all that right now? in the world? Oh, oh man, it's because well, I'm here in Brooklyn, which is part of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, people around the country might not know this, but New York City is divided into five counties and they're called boroughs. So I'm in the biggest borough of Brooklyn. And so when COVID-19 hit, I think um, we saw the impact from the devastation of what was going on earlier and more dramatically than the rest of the country. So it's been kind of challenging in that um, I work in healthcare policy and I was witnessing this stuff up close and personal, both as it would affect the, the Medicaid budget in our state capital and then through the the budget that comes down to the company that I work for. And then I saw it firsthand as it related to my personal care assistance in my home. So I was kind of managing it from multi different levels. And I have to say, I mean, there was a, a few weeks near the beginning when we really didn't know what was going on. We didn't have a good sense of the science and what we needed to do. I still don't think it's been managed very well at the federal or the state level. And you know, I'm reading policy documents that talk about ventilator allocation. And literally it says in this New York State Department of Health policy document that a ventilator can technically be taken away from one person to give it to another person if a clinician decides that the ventilator is not being used properly or if, if it's not, you know, if it's not going to have any benefit. And essentially it boils down to like a, a doctor deciding who lives and who dies. So there was a couple of weeks there when things were really scary and um, after a certain point, I just had to say, you know, I'm going to get through this, whatever it takes. And that's all there is to it. So, mm-hmm. it's tough, but, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've learned about myself. Um, I think I'm tougher than a lot of people think. So, I'm not terribly afraid of the disease, per se. I'm more afraid of having to go into a hospital and what the healthcare system would do or not do for me, which to me 
that's more dangerous and frightening than um, underlying diseases themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, thank you for sharing that. And if you look across the country, the, the opinions on COVID-19 and the reactions to it are so sporadic. You either are very afraid of it or you're just casually going on with your life. It's just all over the place. But you, you've been in the thick of it in the beginning. So you've seen some stuff. And yeah. um, my uncle um, lives in Manhattan, actually. He lives kind of, I think it's the east side, the upper east side, yeah, I believe. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, I don't remember. But yeah, so he too, he echoes what you're sharing on here. So you've all just been in the madhouse when everything broke out in March. And man, especially for um, people with disabilities who require ventilators and what you've seen with health policy and just how such a juggernaut and uh, just how crazy it's been, um, that had to be quite an experience. For you to see yeah, well, right as the right as the pandemic was you know coming to ahead in like the end of February beginning of March coincidentally I was on a um, state panel of people like quote unquote uh, stakeholders and people that had some expertise in healthcare policy and we had to we were charged with the responsibility of helping to redesign Medicaid to save six billion dollars, that's billion, not million, six billion dollars in in Medicaid spending in New York State, and I was the lone voice that was saying, "Hey, you know, it's irresponsible to be cutting six billion dollars right at this time when." This pandemic is looming. It's right there. It's getting bigger, and it's gonna, you know, you know, it's gonna get bad. And people kept saying, "Oh, the governor gave us this job. We have to do this." And you know, in the end, when we had to vote on the plan that was developed, I was the only one that abstained, and I just said, as a matter of conscience, I am not voting for this. And um, then like a week later, less than a week later, that's when the city got, that's when New York State got completely shut down. So, um, and I knew we were facing something, you know, of historical, almost biblical proportions. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I kind of felt like people that, you know, were in government and the heads of, managed care companies wanted to be serious. Sadly, I was proven right, and they are now left to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. Man, nothing new under the sun, I can say. There's a threat, and man's ignorance is like, eh, whatever, it'll be fine. Yeah. You know, that just sums us up so much. And, you know, I can't imagine being in a major city, especially New York City, where, and um, not to mention the West Coast, out in like Seattle and Washington State and all that. So this is on the coast. This is where the bursts of cases, and that's where it really bloomed. And to be in a situation, as you described, 
where you have to decide who and who does not receive the proper care or receive a ventilator. That's got to be the most hellish feeling. You know, I would never want to be in a situation like that. That is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, I think that, yeah, that's partly the situation. Because, you know, at the beginning, I don't think physicians really knew um, the right way to treat this thing. So they were kind of making it up as they were going along. I mean, people say, oh, it's like a bad case of the flu. No, not really. It's, it's more serious and it's unique. It's different. And so um, doctors were trying to sift through symptoms and figure things out on the fly. And um, I think that like for people that get sick now, the survivability of it is far greater. But um, back at the beginning, they had no idea what they were doing. They were just making it up. And once it got into the nursing homes, oh, it just spread like wildfire. I had one of my backup uh, attending care workers. Um, his main job is working on nursing home here in Brooklyn. And so every week or two, I would just check on and see how he was doing. And he would tell me, oh, it's crazy. You know, there's a lot of death. Um, and then I, he, he was able to work for me about two weeks ago. And we were talking about it. And he said that the numbers, at least at the nursing home where he works, are far, the, the, the real numbers of dead people is far greater than what was actually reported to the state. So, you know, you can go online right now and, and look up, you know, down to the person, how many people have died in, in this epidemic or pandemic, if you will. And those are estimates. They're not really accurate. The number is probably far higher. So, you know, we're at 190,000 as of today, but the number could be easily 20, 30, 40,000 more. Right. I saw that this morning on my news update with the, um, the number that has reached 190,000. Man. Yeah. And you hear cases all the time now where it's just, oh, it's higher than it is. No, it's lower than it is. I think that's what's really kind of freaking people out, that lack of control and that lack of who to trust. And, you know, we're saying things like this organization says one thing or this person says another thing. I think that's kind of what may make people kind of get thrown off. And I, and I think that's like what's making people not take it seriously. It's because they're not having that right way of trust, you know, there's so many opinions flying around and people don't do their research. They just kind of go off the handle of what this source says, what the other source says. And when they mm -hmm. conflict, it's like, oh, you know what? We don't know who to trust. Let's just roll with it. So I well, get what I, you're I saying, but at the same time, for, it's not the that's not a smart mindset, you know? Well, I, I would say for people like us, we've been around the healthcare system and we kind of know how to judge risk. And, you know, we probably, I, I know I do, but I suspect you're similar. 
You mean you pay careful attention to exactly how your body feels, and yeah. you know, you know, you probably know more than a lot of medical people about what's going on. I mean, you might not have the exact terminology, but you're paying attention. And you know, I'm not looking to live in a world where everything is perfectly safe, and I don't necessarily want. I don't want government to, you know, take care of me from cradle to grave, per se, right? But there's been so much mismanagement on multiple levels, and it really just infuriates me that something as simple as wearing a mask has become sort of a tribal symbol of, of and turned into like a, a cultural argument. Just wearing a mask should not be that controversial, and yet, as a country, we can't be rational anymore. Mm -hmm. So, it's discouraging. It really is. I mean, masks really do help. You know, they're not the answer. They're not going to, you know, absolutely 1,000% protect everyone right. from sick. But they do slow down the transmission. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not waiting for a vaccine to come along in the next two months. I think that's unrealistic. So we have to learn how to live with this darn thing. And I think it's doable, but we need to be smarter. And, you know, stop pointing fingers and make good decisions. Right. Yeah, and I look at all that and it is. I've talked about this with other people before. It is kind of a tribalism thing. It's so territorial as well. And, you know, it's like that with every narrative. I feel like any kind yeah. of narrative that comes out, any big thing like this, it's like you're either for us or against us. You either wear a mask or you don't. If you wear one, you're living in fear. You're falling for the fear mongering. If you don't wear a mask, you have the IQ of Forrest Gump. You're an idiot or something yeah. like that. You know, it's like the mask is a symbol for so many different ridiculous yeah. things now yeah. and um personally i wear it when i have to of course and my dad too um, my dad and i um get a little bit have breathing issues if we wear it um too snug for too long um, my dad yeah. has a heart issue and so and he has anxiety on top of that and since he was yeah. a little boy it's crazy and i'm um, like he was in church a few weeks ago and that was when Wisconsin, I live in Wisconsin, by the way, that was when Wisconsin um, really enforced the mandate. And so that's when my church was responding to it accordingly, you know, just it's a new thing. So whatever. And um, my dad, he could just barely fulfill the worship. He could barely stand up all the way because sure. it was just, it was just really, ever since, you know, ever since he had his heart surgery, um, 18 months ago, approximately, his anxiety has actually gotten slightly worse in a, I, I, in like a physiological sense. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy how that works. So he understands it. I understand it. All those people that are iffy about it, I hope they understand it. So like he and I kind of fall under the realm of physical exemptions in that sense. So it all depends, but if people are just bashing other people strictly because of one thing or another, that's where I kind of 
get annoyed, you know, and I'm watching news clips. People, they're fighting over this. They're physically fighting in the streets over a mask because someone, a store employee or a manager requested that they put it on. You know, it's their business. They have a right to enforce it. And they're fighting. They're wrestling in the street on the sidewalk. It's insane. And oh, oh my goodness, they, like, they really... Brooklyn has a well-deserved reputation for being kind of wild and rowdy. Oh, yeah. I've seen all sorts of stuff here in Brooklyn. Now, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, it's a kind of an upper-middle-income area. And mm-hmm. when I go up and go around the neighborhood, um, the vast majority of people are wearing masks. And yeah. I, I wear the mask... Um, mainly as a courtesy to other people. But if it it gives me like 1% extra chance of not getting sick, it's worth it to be inconvenienced with a mask for Mm -hmm. half an hour, an hour when I'm out. Do I like it? No. Am I getting used to it? Yeah. You know, know, it's just just something we got to do. And to fight about it, to complain about it, it's just kind of counterproductive and a waste of time. So mm-hmm. I do it, and I'm happy to do it. And my mom has also got health challenges. She's 80 and has stage four cancer. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, it's a way of saying I'm doing my small part to prevent my mother from getting sick. So. Mm-hmm. And that's, if that's the least I can do, that's an easy lift. Mm-hmm. That's, that's well said. That's really well said. TK, since I've known you, you've always been such a great person of advocacy. And not just for disabilities, but for just things in general. And I just see, th- see things you talk about, see things you post. Um, obviously, primarily with disabilities. And in your whole life, and the things you've seen, the things you've experienced, um, why did you choose to become a disability advocate? It's a really interesting question. Um, I'd say there's not really one reason, but I'll give you a little bit of my history, and then you can pull from it what you want, or maybe the answer will get more concrete as I go. Um, I spent, as a kid, nine and a half years in a rehab hospital. So um, there I was sort of the big fish in the little pond. I was always the guy that was kind of smart, smart alecky. I was the head of student government. And I was always interested in um, government in general, how history unfolds, and um, so living in the hospital, I got to interact with lots of different disabled kids. And some of them I'm, I'm still friends with 45 years later. I mean, one of my best friends um, was also in the hospital with me. And throughout thick and thin, um, you know, we've maintained in contact all those years. So I got to see firsthand, like, how 
different people are treated somewhat differently. And I'm thinking of a friend of mine, uh, my late friend Charles. Um, he was an African-American kid from uh, a really poor section of the Bronx. And he was at the hospital. And um, he said to our math teacher, um, hey, I have to take the, the math test in the end of June for, in order to graduate. And she basically said, oh, Charles, you're not serious. You can't pass that test. I'm not going to help you. And I witnessed this. I saw this firsthand. I mean, he came from a complicated um, family situation. I think he was, his mom wasn't married. I don't think he knew his father. Um, I think she, he told me he was a junk. And he had complex disabilities. He was legally blind. Oh. And he had spinal bifida. And understandably, he was a hot mess. Right. And I saw her say this to him. And I was just aghast. So that was like on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And he had to take the test the following week. So I worked with him the whole weekend. I tutored him on like basic test-taking skills and uh, simple math. And believe me, this kid was not dumb at all. I mean, he had come from a, a tough background, but he and I were roommates and we would play chess and he mm -hmm. would consistently, consistently beat me at chess. But, you know, when you don't know how to take a multiple choice test, and somebody's telling you, you can't do it, I'm not going to help you. What do you expect? You know, they, they act out, you know? So I worked with him for um, the whole weekend, and he took the test, and lo and behold, he passed it. I mean, not, not a high score. He got like a 72 or a 3 or something like that. Wow, look at that. And then they accused, then they accused him of cheating. Are you kidding? Him. And I, I just, and I went to bed for him. And I said, how dare you? Here's what happened. Andrea didn't do anything. And I did. And I helped him. And now you're going to accuse him of cheating? What kind of teachers are you? And so I mean, it was something like that that really kind of made me um, partly begin to appreciate that um, we don't live in a completely equitable system, and I stuck up for him, and he appreciated it until um, the day he died. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I kept in touch with him over the years. There was one point where um, he was part of a gang doing drugs. This is later on, and ended up in a mental hospital because they thought he was suicidal. And I ended up talking to a psychiatrist in a mental hospital. And I told her the background of Charles. And I said, Charles isn't crazy. Charles doesn't have substance abuse issues. Right. Lots of drugs. He'll be fine. Yeah. Put him in a detox program. Don't drug him up on medications. That's what you do. Get him sober, you know. Because he was literally in the hospital asking me for money. And I said, 
Charles, if I give you money, you're going to go buy a crack. And he said, yeah, you're probably right. You know, and I was always really direct with him. So it was a, you know, a great friendship. But, you know, so then at some point, um, my, you know, my social worker and the hospital and my family, you know, you know, I was getting older and I couldn't stay at the place forever. I mean, it was, as, as we have places go, it's a really good place. It's not, you know, it's not being at home. But in relative terms, um, it was good to be there for me in that my personal family in Brooklyn at the time was kind of dysfunctional. So okay. I, I, was, I was happy to be away from home, 16, 17, yeah, 16 years old. And I was reading, you know, I was thinking, well, I, I can't stay here past high school. I gotta, you know, figure out what the next plan is. So I asked my social worker, um, well, what's gonna happen to me? And he said, well, we can move me to a nursing home up in Massachusetts, or maybe you can go to college. I don't know, it's up to you. What do you want to do? And remember, this is the early part of the 80s. So that might have been 81, 1980, 81, 82, in that era. So um, people with disabilities were beginning to go off to college and do things. I mean, you've probably seen the, the documentary that's on Netflix called Crip Camp. Yes, I have. I watched it about right. a month ago, actually. So, Great stuff. Um, you know, those trailblazers that you saw in that documentary, they had just, you know, gone off to college and were doing great things. And I had some friends that were off of college themselves. So I contacted them and I said, what's it like? How are you doing? Are you surviving? So here it is, I'm laying down on a stretcher, not sitting up very much at all. I might sit up maybe two or three hours a day, but for the most part, I was laying down, breathing. I got the idea, hey, I'm gonna go to college and eventually go to law school. So I approached uh, vocational rehab early. I didn't wait till the last minute. I think I was like 15 or 16. And I went to voc rehab and I said, I want to get ready to go to college. And they said, what's your career objective? I said, I want to be an attorney. I want to fight for people with disabilities. And so that, you know, at the time, you had to get all these things like IQ tests and they wanted to make sure that it was a, a quote unquote feasible uh, vocational goal. And at the time, there was less restrictions on um, how much money they spent on people um, under vote rehab. So they said, yes, we're gonna do that. Um, you can go to law school. So I just started, I went, I left straight from the hospital and I literally didn't even come home. I went straight to a um, college near New York City out in Long Island. And, um, you know, it took a while. I had to kind of learn how to take care of myself. I had to learn how to hire and train people to help me out. 
Um, I ended up transferring. Um, I went to three different colleges, and then I um, moved back home and finished um, a college in Brooklyn. And then I went to a law school right in my neighborhood. So, and again, at law school, yeah, you know, at, at law school, I was sort of an outlier. Um, I was the only disabled person there. Okay. I had no sense of community. Um, because of my education in the hospital and then, you know, bouncing around at three different colleges, you know, I got in to law school, but I wasn't exactly prepared to go to law school. I wasn't a great student. Um, but I got in, partly because my father had gone to that law school. And as such, I was able to get an interview as a, a, a legacy candidate to the school. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to the interview and they said, you know, do you have any questions, right? After the interview, they asked me what I wanted to do. I told them I wanted to fight for disabled people. And um, I, at, at the end, they said, do you have any questions? And um, yeah, I, I just told them I, I really want to go here. I mean, if you give me a slot at Brooklyn Law School, you will not be wasting a slot on me that might go to another student that would just change their mind at the last minute. I will work hard and I'll, I'll make sure that I get to them. Right. So I got in, and um, at first I can't tell you I hated it. Law school is a test of endurance. And I realized pretty quickly that I didn't like it at all. But as really? a you might appreciate this. You know, once you tell once you tell vocational rehab what you want to do, it's hard to shift gears and do something different. Oh my yeah, seriously, I was with them for years. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so here it is. I spent six years getting to the point where I'm in law school, and within two weeks I realized, this stinks, I hate this. And it was like, I felt like if I had gone back to uh, vocational rehab and said, hey, I want to do something else, they would have said, have a nice nice day, you know? So my choice was either grind it out, finish law school, or sit at home and nothing. Right. So obviously, Sitting at home doing nothing was never an option. It would have been easier, but I think from a you know personality perspective, I have to keep my mind active, and the idea of doing nothing is just completely foreign. I believe. Oh yeah, same here. Absolutely, I gotta I, do I, something. I believe we all have agency, and um. We have an obligation, and I know that you're a man of faith, and like I'm not, I'm developing my faith. I'm, I'm a work in progress in that respect. But there's a quote from the Bible that I particularly love. It's uh, Luke twelve forty eight, you know, and it talks about, you know, generally. I'm gonna bumble the quote, but basically, if you've been given gifts, you need to use those. You have an obligation to use those. 
So I take that seriously. I can speak, I can argue, I can advocate. And so I have these tools. And to just sit back and waste time watching TV or just, you know, frivolously doing whatever, uh, I think it's a borderline sin, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're here for a limited time. We've been blessed with life. So if I have a blessing, I got to do something with it. And if I'm not, then that's not good. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, I celebrate with you. And absolutely. So thank you for sharing some of your key points in your life to what led you to where you are and your reflection upon that. So that is just so true on how you have the personality of when something's wrong, you'll say something. When something in your life is out of place and something in your life isn't going the way it should or when you're being told that you should live a certain way, you'll put your foot down or your wheel down, whatever, and you'll say yeah. something. That's great. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's hard because I've been in instances where I saw something horrible and it just happened so fast. Like one time I was having a conversation in a thrift store one time with a lady. I was out in Long Island with my um, attendant, my personal care worker, and we're having a lovely conversation with her. And then the phone, his phone rang, and he said, excuse me, I have to take this call. And he walked away, picked up his phone, answered it, and was speaking with his wife in Spanish. Right? And then he finishes his call, he comes back over, just figuring, well, we're going to pick up with this nice conversation that we were having. And she says, you know, I really don't care what you were saying, but if you're in America, you should speak English. And oh. I just could not believe that he had that kind of racist you know, response. He had, you know, the, uh, I could not believe that this lady that was being so pleasant to us was just a flat out racist, you know? And that was like the beginning of the garbage we're facing right now. About maybe, I'd say, eight years ago. Okay. And um, it all happened so fast. I didn't even know what I was. I just said, okay, we got to go. And I turned around and we left, right? And I was like, literally, as we got to the car, I was almost hyperventilating. I was in comedy. It was a combination of like embarrassment, anger, and then disappointment in myself that I hadn't reacted more proactively to really, you know, put her in place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with an immigrant speaking to his wife in the language that they're most accustomed. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know. And how that person could feel that it was okay for her to say that was That's just not right. That's ridiculous. Outrageous, you know. It is it's outrageous. Not like was, it's not like he was yelling and screaming. I knew this guy for years and years and years. I knew yeah. he worked hard on his language. He really was learning to speak English 
really well. Um, he would was one of these guys that he would get like he had like a, a vocabulary app on his phone, and every day he was learning a new word. It wasn't mm-hmm. like he was going around demanding that people speak English to him. If he was around people that spoke English, he spoke English. But if he's speaking to his wife, who doesn't speak English as well as him, why should he speak Spanish? You know? Yeah. So, What's well, insane? We live in, or what I, I should say, we just, um, we yeah, just, was, we're, was, we're so focused was, on the idea of American exceptionalism that, in other words, that means like, like this is God's country. This is the country that's the center of the universe. You come here, you abide under our ways. I can see what you're saying, but you don't say that to something so wrong and disrespectful to it. Like an immigrant couple like that, you know what I mean? That's just rude. Yeah. And, you know, they're just talking amongst each other, this couple, as you're saying, and, the, and they're interrupting saying, you know what, you're going to live here, you're going to speak our language. It's like, yeah. how more bullheaded and arrogant can we get? Don't answer that because it can get a lot worse. Um, but yeah. it's so true. It's just, um, you know, and I think about what you're talking about with how you always feel led to say something as an individual, because clearly with how you're speaking, how much you're able to speak, you know how to just speak at the right moment and what to say. And so this comes into my next couple of questions with you. And thank you for sharing all that, by the way. With these questions, I think about, especially nowadays, it might have been different 20, 30 years ago, but I think about like with the disabled community and individual advocacy, how different they are and how one seems to be growing stronger than the other. I look at groups like Cure SMA and other groups like that, um, or MDA, for example, we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But are these groups now, are these nonprofits, are they working anymore for advocacy? Are they doing a crappy job compared to what we're doing individually nowadays? It's really hard to say. I mean, um, when I was a kid, and really until relatively recently, like three, four years ago, there were no treatments at all for different neuromuscular disabilities. Now, for spinal muscular atrophy, there's two or three different options. So, I mean, I give, I give some begrudging credit to these organizations that have been you know, raising money and um, funding research. Mm-hmm. I'll give them a little bit of credit. Um, I do think that um, a lot of the money that they raise gets squandered okay. uh, on administration and, um, like, and some of the people at MDA are really highly paid and like when it comes to accounting and bookkeeping you can you can make a fundraising event move from an administrative expense over to the program side of the ledger 
if you do something like hand out informational flyers at the event. So you, you spend $20,000 putting on an event, and then if you hand out flyers that explain what muscular dystrophy is, at that point, the event has served a program benefit. And so you, you take that $20,000 and move it from the administration expense into the the program call, you know? So I think that the numbers are really a little bit deceptive. So I give them a little bit of credit, but I can't yeah. give them a hard credit. With regards to pure SMA, um, I went to their conference. The last conference they had before they changed their name to Cure SMA. And so I had never been around that many people specifically that had SMA. Yes, uh, of back course. Then, before they changed their name, they were called um, Families with SMA, which I really liked. I mean, I, I liked the, the idea. Like, we're one big family, you know? It's a very, yeah. uh, it, it embraced my, you know, appreciation of the value of community. So I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. I liked it. I mean, I got to meet um, some of their doctors that were really interested in, you know, part of my personal protocols for respiratory health, etc. cetera. And one doctor, she was like, Oh, we're having another panel in the afternoon. Can you come back and speak to them? I said, yeah, sure. And I, you know, I met parents, I met little kids, yeah. I met teenagers, and you know, it was, I mean, I'm not really, it was kind of culty, a little bit like a cult, but I still, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I went, and I had a good time. And, and that's what matters. Literally, literally, um, a month after, I went to the conference, they had a big media splash and announced families with SMA is changing their name because cures are what we want. And they changed their name to Cure SMA. At that point, I was curious. You know, I'm not even curious. I was just disappointed because I'm not about cures. I mean, I, I'm still not taking Spermaza. I'm not going to take Zilgen's one. The idea of those two treatments require a needle in the spine. I'm not doing that. That's not for me. But the other treatment, uh, raises the plan. Yes. I'm really interested in that. So I'm, I'm working on my doctor to prescribe it. And like a liquid daily dose of a medication, if it either arrests the progression or improves me a little bit, that's one thing I can do, right? Yes. But a needle on the spine, that's not for me. And so, you know, this idea of, because when you say cure, a cure is you know, basically a fix to a problem. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure, I don't, you know, I don't feel that I need to be fixed. You know, I need mm -hmm. support. But I don't want to be fixed. I'm, I'm okay with who I am. And um, mm -hmm. it got me this far. I wouldn't even know what I would do if a cure came my way, you know? So yeah, okay. I didn't like, I didn't like the whole messaging of it. 
of mm. this idea of curing. And then, like, coincidentally, the company I worked for, we were looking to hire one of those brand consultants. So um, the person that was coordinating that effort um, hired, uh, made an appointment with this company. So I didn't know anything about the company. I went to the company and I'm watching their PowerPoint presentation. And like on the second slide, they um, showed the logo for QSMA. And they said, oh yeah, we worked on it. We did that, we have the rebrand as QSMA. At that point, I was like, okay, do you realize what's problematic about that? And I explained my point about the difference between families with SMA versus cure SMA. And they politely listened, but I knew they did not know, they, you know, viscerally did not get what I was talking about. Yes. So, you know, you know so I, I basically checked out at that point. I was polite, I listened <laughs> to the whole presentation, but, you know, if they can come up with that type of advice, to an organization and not fully appreciate the perspective that I was describing, it, you know, it kind of showed that there's a lot of work still to do in terms of getting people with disabilities just to mm -hmm. be accepted by the rest of society. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I kind of bring this up. And I'm, I really like your answer. So keep in mind when I'm talking about these different groups, and everything. I'm just playing devil's advocate. So when I'm sure. talking about these things, um, you're observing such a great narrative change in some of these groups. Because when you, when you're involved a lot more with families of SMA, it's like okay, well, that, that's really what it was about. I, that's what they I focus went, on. I only went to one conference. I mean, it's not like I was, you know. No, no, but like you had that yeah. favor. Uh, but like you liked what they were trying to do in that under that narrative, and then when they shifted yeah. to cure SMA, sorry, to um, when they shifted to cure SMA, um, a lot of it shifted along with that. They kind of created the narrative of, yeah, like this is fine, but let's fix you, let's work on something, let's make you fixable, and you know, I bring this all up because um, there have been other people in my life or other people I've seen in the media that they don't have a good idea of this. They don't like this narrative at all. They feel like it's kind of counterintuitive to disability advocacy, where mm -hmm. it used to be focusing on helping the individuals and the families do what they do, but now it's all about the cure, as in let's just get to the fixing of it because this person this person is a victim. This person needs to get fixed. And, it's, and you're telling me it's like, okay, that's weird because I don't need to be fixed. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, to go back to a more egregious example of how disability gets portrayed is what Jerry Lewis and the NBA telethon yes. used to tell about. I mean, they would roll out the cute little disabled kids, and they would go, oh my god, it's so terrible. And they had this, like, Jerry's crying, and he's, like, you know, painting the most bleak, dark, 
you know, horrible story about what, you know, lies ahead for these kids. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Life is difficult, right? Not that it's all easy, but it's not all bad. Every day I find something interesting, funny, thoughtful, you know, I'm constantly finding new things. And so many of my friends with um, neuromuscular disabilities, yeah. you know, have a similar outlook. So when Jerry Lewis would, you know, cry, literally, and tell the world how awful it is to be disabled, and like, literally, he said, if you're in a wheelchair, you should just stay home in your iron prison, and, and you're only a half person, and, you know, things like that. Yeah, I was fighting against the NBA telephone for years. I mean, I went to protests. I would literally call up the studios and just like harangue the people that would answer the phone. I would try to explain what was wrong with the telephone, and I would just waste their time. I would write letters. I would, you know, do what I could to help um, defeat it. And um, eventually he got fired, and the telephone right. got scaled down and then discontinued. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to take a victory lap. We won. The good guys fought the good fight, and we won. That's and the then, way it should be, yes. Right, and now they're bringing it back. And oh. they're bringing it back with oh. just as we oh, are. Yeah, yeah they're, they're bringing it back with just as controversial figure so um yeah you know i grew up as well watching that stuff here and there it was like every year in the summer right something like that the mda telethon around the around that uh, time labor i remember day. It was, no it was labor day so the end of the summer whatever right and mm -hmm. so yeah i even then like watching it in the late 90s early 2000s um, and as, as far as I went, even then, I would not really watch it. There's something about it just bothered me. Now that I'm older, it's like I see it. All that stuff nowadays, it's just, it's so manipulative in the way they yeah. get you. Have you seen those commercials for, what's it called, St. Shriner's Hospital? Yeah, yeah. Is that the yeah, so the, in my area, yeah. yeah, in my area, um, we have a channel, a TV channel called MeTV. It's kind of like a TV land type of channel. And uh, it's like, you know, something very similar to that, where they show old television shows, Three Stooges, Sven and Gooley, whatever. And yeah. so I'm watching that channel. You know, the, the, the demographic for these type of channels and networks like that, it's, you know, for elderly people. People that are at uh -huh. home with their social security. And, uh -huh. you know, it's very easy to put these type of commercials with the cute little disabled kids with the very cute bow ties and the high-pitched voices saying mm -hmm. that they're in kind of a rough patch and they need your donations to help us get fixed, to help this hospital with their research, which is fine with the research part and everything. I get that. Like, things need money. Things need funding. Things need research. And you need money to do research and all that jazz, but it's the way they manipulate have always, I mean, it's, it's basic marketing, you could say. It's, it's just, well, no, you're right, it's marketing, 
I will say that I see, I see, I see, I have a slightly different take on the Shriners commercials. Those kids are, first of all, they're not, they're cross disability. They have lots of different things. And I don't really feel that those commercials say, look how terrible it is. These kids are all going to die. Uh-huh. Please feel sorry for them. Well, uh-huh. To me, there's a, a different message. Sure, the kids might be being used, but they all seem happy. And, they and do. They're, they're, you know, they're active, and there's a little bit of dancing, and there's kids playing wiffle ball, and they're active. And, you know, to me, there's a difference because the underlying message is, hey, we're an organization that wants to help these happy kids mm-hmm. grow up and be, you know, they don't say the word productive, they don't mention something like, you know, going to college and getting a job or having a family. Mm-hmm. But to me, there's a, a different tone to those China commercials versus what Jerry Lewis used to do. I mean, like, and it wasn't just Jerry. There was one, um, there was one year, this is like in the, Mid nineties, there was a terrible ABC reporter, um, Kathy Sullivan. Okay, that was just a nothing. And so there's this little kid. He's like six or seven, and typical, you know, MDA kid. He had a big smile on his face and brown puffy cheeks, and yeah, kid is about right. And Kathy Sullivan leans down, and she goes, "Timmy." Do you realize you're gonna die? You gotta be you joking. Know, I swear to God, this is the God's honest truth. Okay. All right. And then you know his face goes from a big smile, you know, to what? Well, I mean, I'm not gonna live forever. I'm not gonna be the you know the center of attention with people being nice to me. You know, no. I can't remember the kid. I hope the rest for him, you know, you know, maybe he's alive and thriving today. But when you have an organization that says induce pity to raise money, that's what you get. You know, as an organization, they gave the green light to that type of just reckless, irresponsible, and just you know, dreadful type of behavior. And, you know, it's a true story. Mm-hmm. That's a true story. Man. And now we're bringing the MDA telethon back with Kevin Hart, strictly again with children. And, you know, there's been a lot of uproar about that. Like, yeah, it's back and everything, but it's only with children. And it's like, no one cares about raising money or observing or talking about all of the adults now with disabilities. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I have no confidence at all that they would be responsible and say, like, if they were doing something like, hey, help, you know, make a donation and we will help these kids grow up to be, you know, productive or healthy adults. That would be one thing, but given their track record, 
of how they conduct business and they know what works and they know what what doesn't work, they're gonna go right back to the well and go back to the pity party. And I, you know, so I'm I'm not giving them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not giving them um, a, a, a free moment. I will oppose this type of stuff um, until I'm done. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I just you know I, I don't I don't really think that they will be responsible because I mean they've been I mean they they yeah they they say oh we want to work with NMD United and they basically want to take our work and and then not. Um, you know, you don't want to give us credit for it. And there's all sorts of ways that we can collaborate together. I'd be willing if they were sincere and serious about collaboration. They don't do that, you know? Yeah, of course. They they have a job to meet and they they seem committed to sticking with their game. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm again, I'm looking at these things, and the way you describe it very well, by the way, and just how things have changed. You know, it doesn't even have to be in the disabled community. It, it can be just any kind of like nonprofit perspective with any kind of um, thing it's helping out with, or organization, or a minority. You know, have we really like shifted? from a quality of life narrative to a cure narrative. You know what I mean? Like everything is all cure, 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 but we're, we're putting less attention on the quality of life aspect, you know? Yeah, no, um, you, we, not you, but as a society, we need to um, kind of look at like, do, are, are the words that we say, do they match what we actually do? So, for instance, um, I was involved with a managed care company here yeah. in New York City that specifically targeted people with physical disabilities. And so what they did was, over a 20-year time frame, they worked exclusively with disabled people. Yes. Um, everything from, like, Spinal cord injuries to MS to cerebral palsy and and uh, muscular dystrophy, you know, across the gamut, they had an expertise in things that related to being disabled, and so they they literally had um, disabled people on staff um, at the high-ranking level. They really did get it, and the government, New York State kept saying, oh, you're doing great work. You know, really, we really like what you're doing. Keep up the job, you know, keep doing what you're doing, right? And so I was on the board of directors. And the problem was, for what we were doing, they weren't paying us enough money to actually cover the care needs of an expensive part of the population. So on the one hand, you know, we got recognition from government, but then they don't put the money behind what they want us to do. And after 20 years of the government, you know, promising 
oh yeah, we're gonna fix you, we're gonna we're gonna make sure you can get the right funding stream. I remember they just said, okay, we're not helping you anymore. You need to go into insolvency. We're done. Right? Yeah. Even though we are doing exactly what they told us to do. Mm-hmm. You know, under like literally four different governors and then Governor Cuomo just pulled the rug out from under us and shut us down. So, um, you know, I think what you were talking about, the emphasis between cure versus quality of life, the company I'm referencing, they understood that a, a functional wheelchair really is the key to um, success in the community. So they would literally bend over backwards to make sure that your chair was working. And in fact, um, many people at, at this company were provided with a, a regular chair and a backup chair. Or they would have um, um, other power wheelchairs ready for um, um, loaning out to the people in the company. So if your wheelchair broke, you can make a phone call, and sometimes the same day, get a backup wheelchair delivered to you. Might not be perfect, but for, for a lot of people, you know, functional is good enough. You know, it wouldn't work for me. I have really, really, really custom needs. Um, but for other people, uh, a regular wheelchair, a regular power wheelchair, might not be perfect, but it's good enough. You know, and it was going good until the government uh, shut them down. And so then the, the disabled people were furious and they tried to embarrass the governor and they were able to get sort of an extension of the, the benefits that they were receiving for, mm-hmm. um, to, be, to be provided by the other company that took over for them. And um, but that you know that extension has run out, and you know unfortunately we're kind of moving backwards. So it's not just an emphasis between uh, cures versus quality of life. Um, the disabled people in New York, in, in in some ways, are looking at an even worse third alternative, uh, which is just being neglected, being told, tough luck, you're on your own, you know, take your chances. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm thinking about all this. My buddy and I, um, we talk about like government benefits with the disabled and everything all the time. And, you know, it's funny you say all this as well. And I love this because um, they say, oh, we're going to give you a quality of life. They never say what kind of quality. They never say high quality, <laughs> medium quality, low quality. It's just, oh, man. So it kind of goes back to what you were saying before. It's like if you're a disabled person and you're under the government, I mean, you kind of have to be in a way if you're doing just a typical lifestyle that they want you to be, it's either look for a, it's, it's, it's like look for a cure or live under the conditions that we have predispositioned for you. So let's find you a cure. If not, let's have you just sit at home watching TV with your $2,000 limit in your SSI or something yeah. like that. It's like, oh my goodness, you know? It's wonder, it's wonder 
why a disabled guy is living in poverty. It's a wonder why disabled people are going through so many mental breakdowns and struggling so much with the system right. because the government with disability, we're kind of almost last on the list with how things work out. I mean, it fluctuates. I get oh, that. Let me try that. We're in the last place in the, in the, in the, on the hierarchy of, of quote unquote marginalized people. We're mm -hmm. at the bottom of the pile. We're yeah. under the pile. We're not, you know, we're under the pile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like up here in Wisconsin, um, it's relatively a blue state. And so, you know, in a blue state, you would think it'd be much more adaptive and welcoming for the disabled community because that's somewhat in their agenda. That's what they fight for. That's what they preface in all of their um, standings and platforms and everything. Yeah. It's it's fine. It's good. I mean, other other states are better than others. I get that. But like, just the way it's so limited and... Again, I have, a, I have a buddy, same buddy. He, according to him, he's in a situation where he can't quite move out yet because then they'll have his truck taken away. It took him a couple of years to get his truck with disabled controls for it. And that's like his pride and joy. And he yeah. lives in an environment where it's just better now if he moves out. That's one of his goals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard because you have... Like the the state agencies and the state insurance companies that try to help you out, they say they help you out. Some of them are better than others, but in his experience, he always gets the short straw. And I feel so bad for him. I really do. Like he always gets the crappiest case managers and the most incompetent ones, I should say. And I'm just quoting him. It's just it's hilarious, but he's a great guy. He really is. And I just feel so bad for this kid. And He's one of my best friends and just how he is more verbal and vocal about the system than I am at some points because we just have different experiences of mm -hmm. it because it really is such an individual thing, even though we're all kind of going through the same experience at mm -hmm. the same time. You know, I've been blessed mm -hmm. to have proper care managers or case managers who have helped me with my needs. But he really hasn't, and I hear these horror stories all the time. With how but, you know, it's really uh, again coincidentally, he used the term case manager or care manager. Um, on my side, I mentioned before our call today that um, I've been dealing with a dental issue, and I've been like trying to navigate the healthcare system mm -hmm. here. And frankly, I've come to the conclusion that I need to be my own case manager. Okay. And, and, and look, I've been really lucky over the years. I hardly ever get sick. I've been in the hospital between 85 and now. Between 1985 and now, I was in the hospital one time. Right? So I'm really lucky. And so basically, I haven't had to deal with case managers. I just, you know, I just do what I got to do. I figure it out on my own. But I, I kind of feel like as I get older, I can't rely on my luck any longer. I got to be more proactive and 
deliberate in organizing this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't really feel that bureaucrats ever really can, you know, help an individual as much as an individual can help themselves. So I, I partly feel like um, if there's somebody that can be a case manager, let them use their services on people that really need it, because there are loads of disabled people that really do need that help, right? Yeah, they do. But I wish, as a, as, a, as a policy objective, I wish there was enough flexibility in the system that um, people like us that have a brain and can advocate on our own behalf could just be entrusted to do more on our own. And the bureaucrats that I think get in our way, slow us down, frustrate us, deceive us, give us wrong information, could just get out of our way and let us live our lives. Because I think that if there was more flexibility, I think as a whole, society would be better off. So that for people who want the, the, the freedom and independence of taking care of themselves, you know, they can do that more easily than having to wait for a care manager to make this phone call, to fill out that paperwork, to, you know, coordinate this and do all that. You know, so and let yeah. them let those let those case managers and bureaucrats help people that legitimately and sincerely need help. There's lots of people like that. So. Yeah, that's kind of my thing with all of it as well. Like, you know what? When I look at QSMA, when I look at the MDA, when I look at these other nonprofits, I look at on a different level with um, state insurances or yeah. Medicaid or the other federal things that are helping out with disabled people. Yeah, sometimes they may, sometimes they may suck and all that jazz, but you know what, if it's helping someone, like you're saying, fine, great, grand, wonderful. And when I look at it now, and now you're talking about individual perspectives, do you think nowadays that individual advocacy is the better option. For example, you look at social media and you look at people like us, the disabled people, using the power of social media. They're using Instagram, Facebook, they're using YouTube to bring the world into our lives intimately, one-on-one, -on -one, and what it's like and what our lives are all about. Do you think that's doing better advocacy today because of how advanced technology is and how we as disabled people are able to connect? Well, I, think, no, it, um, I think that kind of speaks to a bigger picture of how communication in general mm -hmm. has evolved so rapidly in the last few years. Um, I think that if one person is going on a campaign with social media, but it's not really um, picked up by anybody else, I don't think that that's all that effective. I think that there needs to be kind of a combination of approach where there might be some 
group of people that came together to organize the ideas and the hashtags and the messaging that might get used to um, oppose, let's say, for instance, the upcoming telephone, right? Mm-hmm. If one person is just working alone, I don't really think that MDA or Kevin Hart really will care anything about it. But if there's like some organizers that are helping to get everybody on the same page, you know, uh, um, a tweet campaign might go from one or two people to two, three, four hundred, you know. And at that point, you begin to get the, like, the multiplication of, of efforts out into the, the universe that I think can be more effective. So I really think it's, it's still a combination. I don't want to just wait for a group to fix my problems. But I think groups need to be involved in developing solutions and messages and ideas. Yeah, of course, absolutely. I like that you say that too, with how um, you, have these one, you have this one side and you have the groups doing different things. And that's great because nowadays that's so easy to do. And I ask you that question about individual advocacy because, again, when you look at QSMA, MDA, all that jazz, the average person, they're not going to really especially like millennials, millennials aren't really, you know, that's not on the top of their head of things to pay attention to or like watch, like I'm 27 years old and I'm a regular dude or I'm a regular chick. Um, I need to sit down and watch the telethon or I, I need to go on the QSMA. What, it, what are these people doing? They're online. They're on Instagram. They're on YouTube. Yeah. That's what they're paying attention to. And I feel mm-hmm. like um, that's the way things are now. Mm-hmm. with i'll just say them you know we got like um people like wheelchair rapunzel we got the youtube channel squirmy and grubs with shane burkaw and hannah you know that's the stuff people are watching now the millennials yeah. especially especially or you could also say gen z that's where the exposure comes and you know and that's why i say like in a way not to knock off the nonprofits, they're doing what they're supposed to do but as far as exposure goes and people seeing what it's like with videos and photos, that's where like, in a way, that's where it is now, the advocacy. Well, I've, I've mentioned um, NMD United. Um, NMD United, that stands for Neuromuscular uh, Disabilities United. Um, it grew out of living with MD, mm-hmm. and um, at least for me, right, when we were creating the group, um, NMD and I did, I was really struck by how there were so many former telephone people, people that had grown up with the telephone, and that's just, you know, how they lived their life, and then how they had a real sense of abandonment when once they became an adult and they didn't die before they were 18, MDA just dropped them, wouldn't return their calls, hardly helped them at all, and didn't want to do anything, didn't want to have anything more to do with it, right? So NMD United very definitely was founded 
to help undo some of the damages that NDA did over years and years and years and years. And I think we have a real commitment toward helping adults with neuromuscular disabilities through peer advocacy and micro-grants. And we're doing a great job, I, I will say that. That's awesome. That's so cool. And I, and I love that that's going on. You know, just like, you know, whether it's individual or nonprofit or a group of people together, there's awareness going on in every different realm. And it's so different today than it was, I assume, in the 80s or the 70s, especially oh, after God. you brought up exactly. the documentary, Crip, the Crip Camp documentary. Mm -hmm. And just to watch what they had to, they had to go through to get the ADA passed and just to how and different know it is now. You know? what's, great about Kip, what's great about Crip Camp is I got to meet many of the people that were featured in my film in, in that film. Yes. Uh, Judy Gillen was from Brooklyn. I met her numerous times at different conferences. And when she came to Brooklyn to speak one time, I won't say that we're close friends, but mm -hmm. it's only to know exactly who I am. And it's people like that that I kind of look to as a role model for. Um, how my career unfolded. I mean, in that film, they, they, they showed Ed Roberts. He's the person that founded the Berkeley Center for Independence at, on the Berkeley campus. I knew him personally. Um, I went to a conference, and my roommate from college and I, we rolled over to him and introduced ourselves. And at that conference, I got to hang out with him for like two days, three days straight. And we had a great time. And like, I had the home phone number and I would call him up and just talk advocacy about what I wanted to see out of life. And I think he um, encouraged me as a young lawyer. I think I was fresh out of law school. I graduated the, the year before at the Bar in 1993. And basically when I met Ed, I was, unemployed, going nowhere fast. And he just told me to stick with it, keep fighting, you know, something will crash. And um, finally I got a job at one of the independent living centers. And I kind of, I fell into a niche. I was like, okay, I can do this. And, you know, so a lot of those people in the film, I know them personally. I've met them over the years and I'm friends with them to this day. And so, yeah, those were kind of my role models as a young lawyer. Wow, man, that's awesome. That's really cool that you got to meet them and how they helped you. That's awesome, man. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And you know what? With all that said, this comes to my last question. And um, so you've seen, you've seen it all, basically, in your life. You've seen the changes. You've seen the changes in accessibility and adaptions and the change in the life of a disabled person. And so it leaves me with what else needs to be done in disability advocacy? Oh, that's probably the $64,000 question. Um, 
I think I alluded to um, some of what I would like to see earlier when I said there needs to be more flexibility in the system. But you said something earlier as well, which kind of relates to um, what I would ultimately like to see. Um, you said that you live in basically a blue state. Um, mm. You know, from a raw political perspective, I feel that the disabled community largely gets abandoned because the Democrats take our vote for granted and the Republicans figure, well, they're not going to vote for us, so why bother, right? So in of the course. end, the Democrats do nothing and the Republicans do nothing. And so what we're left just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, we're left kind of fighting for, you know, little crumbs here and there. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to see a, a responsible overhaul of the entitlement system that would promote more opportunities for individuals. I don't want the safety net to go away. That's mm-hmm. not what this is about. I want the safety net to be more flexible so that for those who can and want to do more, you know, they can do that. So people can rise above. And then for folks that need help and can't really do things for themselves, you know, there needs to be community-based services, um, you know, housing supports, whatever that might be. Something as simple as elimination of the marriage penalty for people with disabilities. If a disabled person wants to marry a non-disabled person, there's an incredible uh, barrier. You lose basically um, your benefits if you if your partner, your wife, your husband, or whatever it is, um, um, has money or has a job. At that point, you can't get married. So, from a sort of like from a religious liberty perspective, if you are a devout person, whatever it is, but you know, Christian, Jewish, you know, mm-hmm. Islamic, whatever, you know, if your parents instruct you that you're not supposed to live with somebody unless you're married, but the system says you lose your identity care because of your your partner's benefits are part of your Medicaid eligibility, all right, as a matter of exercise of religious liberty, I can see a constitutional argument that says that those rules are unconstitutional. So um, I think things like that, things that um, I would like to do the system promote, um, you know, entitlement reform, more flexibility, and things that everybody else takes for granted. People get married, they want to get married, it's not a controversial topic, at least I don't think it is. But if you're disabled, it is. There's no simple answer. Oh, it is. It's ridiculous. And that's kind of the biggest theme I want to end on here, because I think I'm going to continue this topic um, going on, because this is such a widespread discussion. I think I'm going to seep it into my next episode with my next guest. And that's kind of the thing, is that 
the government and all and the system and all that and all that jazz they all praise and want us to have the best life possible but it's like you won't let us you won't let us have the best life possible because your system is so messed up you have us by the family of jewels you won't let us have the quality of life that you brag about so much in your platforms and in your campaigns and yeah. it's like we can't get you won't let us get married properly we can there's loopholes and there's waivers but they're not the, always the easiest to come oh, by and, and all that it's like they say oh there's a way there's a way it's like no like okay yeah there is a way but it's like going down the rabbit hole for goodness sake oh. and so I, i'm with you 100 percent. there needs to be disability reform in so, any in every sense of the word mm -hmm. there needs to be something like that so you are right and um with you coming from brooklyn you see a lot of different disability dilemmas than i may see over here in wisconsin but it's all the same yeah you know mm -hmm. so with that with that said brother with that said my friend thank you so much for being on the show today yeah, that was really great. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, uh, we can maybe do this again sometime. Absolutely. All right. So we'll end right there, people. Disability reform. Make it happen so we can have our spouse. That's what we're going to end on. That's all it's all about. All right, man. Thank you so much, TK Small. Blessings to you, and I will talk with you soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, that was TK Small all the way from Brooklyn. And what a great guy he is. I've only talked to him a few times before, but just the things he shares and the insight he has to all of this, especially with disability advocacy, it just shows so much on how little that other people really get about the life of a disabled person all of the days in and out going on and especially with this and how different things infringe upon just simple basic things and simple rights of just getting married can be such a hassle and challenge for a disabled person but we'll have to wait until the next episode to continue with this conversation so hang tight Meanwhile, if you like what you hear and you want to support Handy Schlaft, please go on to patreon.com slash Handy That's patreon.com slash H-A-N-D-I-S-C-H-L-A-P-P-E-D and sign up to become a member and support the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. God bless. Take care. <laughs>